Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week a continuation of our Foundations of Fascism series. This week, I'm talking about a well-known institution founded by the United States, but operating in and primarily for Latin America. This organization is typically known as the School of the Americas, which had been its name for quite some time. It is now officially known as the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation, or WINSEC. But like I said, it is best known as the School of the Americas, primarily a training facility for military personnel from Latin America by United States operatives, and historically extremely connected with participants in military dictatorships, and especially with people who participated in military dictatorial atrocities. Now, the School of the Americas was not founded under that name. It was founded as the Latin American Training Center Ground Division in the Panama Canal Zone in 1946, immediately after World War II. The original purpose of this institution was to offer training to Latin American military personnel in the use of weapons and techniques gotten from or donated by the United States as a part of wartime and post-war efforts to knit the entire Western Hemisphere together in one big security cooperative. Now recall at this time in 1946, the Panama Canal Zone, that is the area immediately around the Panama Canal, which is in Panama, this was directly administered by the United States, like as a just like straight up United States colony. U.S. law and U.S. military might goes in the Panama Canal Zone in 1946. The United States maintained a huge presence in the region, specifically in the Canal Zone, as a result of World War II and for many decades afterwards. Now, in 1946, you might be thinking about the Cold War and stuff like that, but like that wasn't really happening in 1946. Most of what was happening was just that people were being trained in the use of military technologies. And by technologies, I mean like both machines and also like practices, you know, and techniques that the United States had developed in the war. And this is pretty standard stuff, right? This is just kind of how advanced militaries and developed countries engage with the militaries of developing countries or client states, you know, countries that sort of operate in their political hemisphere. This is not a particularly unusual thing, and the School of the Americas began essentially as just a tool for this, right? A way for military personnel in Latin America to, you know, feel indebted to the United States and also to learn some know-how from the United States. Not particularly different. However, this cooperation and this relationship changed drastically in 1959 with the fall of the Batista regime in Cuba. 1959 is the date of the Cuban Revolution, when Fidel Castro and Che Guevara and their allies took over the entire country of Cuba with an extremely small group of guerrilla fighters. This terrified the United States, just as well as it terrified the establishment figures in a bunch of other Latin American and also worldwide countries. This institution, what would eventually become the School of the Americas, then transitioned from being this relatively bland, cooperative organization, not like those operated by more powerful militaries throughout history, into a tool of U.S. geopolitics and strategic political propagandizing. Starting in 1961, JFK decided that the school would focus specifically on anti-communist training, and that its specific goal would transition to developing an anti-communist cooperative 
for United States military personnel to train Latin American personnel in preventing, quote-unquote, another Cuba from happening in the region. This meant that the school's training transitioned from, you know, teaching people how to use, like, artillery and gunboats and, like, big pieces of military technology that the United States had donated or left or sold after World War II, that it would transition from that to riot control, mob control, jungle warfare, counterinsurgency training, counterintelligence, things like that. And that is what the school is primarily known as. It was finally renamed as the School of the Americas in 1963 because it was intended to be an example of the hemispheric purpose of the institution. Now, contrary to how it's normally imagined, the School of the Americas never only trained Latin American personnel. U.S. military personnel were always students at the School of the Americas as well. And this interchange, the fact that U.S. military personnel and foreign military personnel, and specifically Latin American military personnel, were always participating together, was part of how it created this, this, this impression, you know, this idea of a combined anti-communist force. Studying in 1963 as the School of the Americas, the institution really taught people anti-insurgency programs and platforms. It gave trainings in jungle warfare, like, you know, how to operate as a small military unit operating off the grid in a jungle or in some other wilderness environment. It trained people in how to operate and use radios, not just to communicate with each other, but also as propaganda devices, as commercially accessible radios became a viable tool of propaganda throughout the region, you know, the, the cheapening of personal use radios and also their being possible as like, you know, little small devices that you could carry around in your pocket or in a car meant that they became extremely important tools of propagandizing as they became cheaper. They also trained them in how to operate in guerrilla and anti-insurgency situations. This was a big difference from how the school had operated, again, just about 20 years before, right after World War II. World War II was a total war, you know, it was soldiers versus soldiers or soldiers versus civilians. The idea in the mind of how, you know, the, these, the, these military personnel were thinking about it was that guerrilla war is, is, is one in which you don't know who your enemy is, right? And so they were trying to train their fighters to attack the entire civilization of the place that they were attacking, right? The, the idea was that you couldn't tell if a person was a villager or an insurgent. That was their justification for their crimes. This meant that the School of the Americas was the perfect place for U.S. military personnel to begin their training before they went on to lead counterinsurgency and guerrilla warfare military practices in Vietnam because the Vietnam War begins to ramp up in the United States in the mid-1960s and late 1960s, where is the United States already training a bunch of people in counterinsurgency warfare? Well, it's in the School of the Americas. And then when those military personnel come back from their tours in Vietnam, having, I, I guess they would imagine it as gained uh, good insight into how to be effective counterinsurgency fighters, by which they generally mean massacring large numbers of people and discriminating against villagers and peasants and thinking of them as the enemy, right? You know, thinking of the civilians that you're supposedly protecting as the enemy. They then brought those tactics and those suggestions and those tools, you know, those institutional and technical technologies back to the School of the Americas, repopulating Latin America with the same tactics that the United States had employed in Vietnam. 
By the 1970s, most of the cadets trained in the School of the Americas were from Latin America. And by the 1980s, the vast majority, like over 70%, came from just three countries, Mexico, El Salvador, and Colombia. In 1984, the School of the Americas was expelled from the Panama Canal Zone as per Panama's regaining of its control of the area as a part of the Panama Canal Treaty, which the United States signed with the country of Panama in the 19th century as part of building the canal itself, right? So, so this, is, this is just like a planned obsolescence of the United States' control over the canal. The canal zone remains very, very influenced by United States control, incidentally. So in 1984, the School of the Americas can no longer be in the Panama Canal Zone. It searches around, you know, maybe it's going to move to a different part of the Caribbean. But eventually it sets on Fort Benning, Georgia, which is now called Fort Moore, Georgia. It operated there for another about 15 years until it formally closed in the year 2000, replaced by a new institution, the one that I highlighted at the beginning of this episode, called WINSEC. WINSEC has continued to operate in a little bit of a different capacity, right? By the year 2000, the Cold War was over, the, the worries about communism had really dissipated. WINSEC primarily now continues to teach some counterinsurgency stuff, but it's mostly the idea is to, to fight uh, narco-trafficking, right? To fight gangsters and people who are selling drugs and taking over territory in that capacity. So that was a general rundown of the history of the School of the Americas, why am I talking about this at all? Well, again, it's because the School of the Americas has a long and storied list of terrible, terrible students. I am not going to be able to tell you a, a comprehensive list of all of the military dictators and massacrists and people who have participated in military dictatorships who attended this school. There are arguably tens of thousands of those people. If you are interested in doing some of that research, you should do so on your own. It's a really good record of the United States' complicity in military dictatorship and in extremely terrible, violent acts throughout the world. I am going to list some unfortunately titled, you know, highlighted people who attended this school. But again, this is just some of the people. Some of these people include Emilio Macera and Jorge Videla, uh, who were two of the leaders of the Argentine military coup in 1976, which would ultimately kill more than 30,000 people. Other participants in the military government of Argentina, including a couple of its later presidents in the early 1980s, were also attendees of the School of the Americas. Another attendee was Hugo Banzer of Bolivia, uh, who was a dictator to president of Bolivia in 1971 until 1978, he participated in the murder, torture, and disappearing of hundreds of Bolivian people. His government detained some 4,000 Bolivians and imprisoned several more, and was generally one of the participants in the military dictatorial wave in that region in the 1970s. And speaking of that wave of military dictatorships, another attendee of the School of the Americas is Miguel Contreras, who ran the Chilean military intelligence branch under Augusto Pinochet. This branch, which was called the DINA, was a major integral part of the so-called Condor Plan, the Plan Condor, which was a cooperative of military intelligence and secret intelligence institutions throughout South America. They shared information with each other. They shared lists of potential detainees. They helped each other crack down and track down on people that they wanted to find or kill. Miguel Contreras is an extremely important person in the history of the Americas, and yeah, he was trained at the School of the Americas. 
Other people include Guillermo Rodriguez, who was the military dictator of Ecuador uh, from 1972 to 1976. We have Roberto de Albuison, who is the El Salvadorian general who participated in their military dictatorship and was found by a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in El Salvador to have been the guy who specifically ordered the assassination of then Archbishop and now Saint Oscar Romero, who was a major detractor and critic of that military dictatorship while he was a member of the clergy. Additionally, we have Efrain Rios Montt, who is one of the most disturbing and murderous of the military leaders of Guatemala. He was found guilty of genocide in a Guatemalan court in the 1990s. We have Raul Cedras, who is the leader of the Haitian military junta in 1991. We have Omar Torrios, who is the Panamanian dictator from 1968 to 1981, etc., etc., etc. You see what I'm talking about. The School of the Americas was a beating heart of the Cold War in Latin America, a place where the Cold War was not cold at all. Many, many people died. Tens of thousands of people were killed by attendees of this military school. Now, in the United States, that means that the School of the Americas looms large in the imagination of the left and of progressives and of people who are generally critical of the United States' military involvement in military dictatorships around the world, or people who think that the United States has extended its hand too much or that its hand is too bloody. I agree with those criticisms. Obviously, the School of the Americas is involved in some terrible atrocities. But we have to be careful. Lots of times when people talk about the School of the Americas, they present it as sort of like uh, an institution where people get their puppet strings attached, right? This is a place where the United States indoctrinates and sort of like controls military dictators. And, like, you know, you're like, this is, this is the key to some sort of conspiracy. That's not what it is. The School of the Americas is one part of a complicated web of systemic power that the United States wielded over Latin American militaries and eventually Latin American military dictatorships in the 20th century. It's an important part of that story, but it isn't just like the center of that story, right? We also have to be extremely careful about attributing blame specifically to the United States for atrocities that were committed elsewhere. Obviously, the United States is involved in these atrocities. It is complicit in them in some capacity, but we also can't pretend that the Latin American actors who actually committed these atrocities you know, wouldn't have done them if they hadn't gotten this training from the United States. That's not necessarily true either. And we have to be clear-eyed about this, right? We have to understand this as a part of a system of this behavior. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Just like last week, if you have some extra money in your pocket, do not go to my Patreon. Instead, please donate it to the Red Cross, to the Red Crescent, or to Medicine Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders. You can check out my Gmail at 15minutesoffascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right, that's H-I-S-T of the right, and fascism15. And I'm on Blue Sky at 15-M-I-N-S-O-F-F-A-S-C. All right, thank you very much, and I will talk to you on Thursday.